Are you ready for the most ridiculous internet sports show you have ever seen? Welcome to React, home of the most outrageous and hilarious videos the web has to offer. So join me, Rocky Theus, and my co-host, Raiders Pro Bowl defensive end, Max Crosby, as we invite your favorite athletes, celebrities, influencers, entertainers in for an episode of games, laughs, and of course, the funniest reactions to the wildest web clips out there. Catch Reacts on YouTube, and that is Reacts, R-E-A-X-X. Don't miss it. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. In 2003, Nike signed 13-year-old Freddie Adu to a seven-figure contract. But Freddie didn't live up to the hype. He has turned down every single documentary project looking closely at the details of his career. Until now. People are going to look at everything you did because of the hype surrounding your arrival and what they think you can be. I'm Grant Wall, and this is American Prodigy, Freddie Adu, from Blue Wire Podcasts. Cast. My name is Dmitry Filipovich, and joining me is my good buddy Jordan Samuels Thomas. Jordan, what's going on, man? Nothing. Just uh, enjoying my time here in, in San Diego. Uh, obviously played here for a couple of years, so it's that time of uh, year where everything gets cold, but it's not too bad here. So just enjoying uh, the time not on the ice right now. Well, I gave you some homework for your first appearance on the podcast, and uh it's uh, at least I was watching a game. I was watching some tape. It was um, and it was a good one at that. Where you and I are going to do uh, the rewatch of uh, Chicago versus LA from the 2014 West Final Game Seven in particular. But um, I guess we'll start off here because uh, this is a good kind of a introduction point for us. Um, let's kind of tee it up with like kind of sort of the legacy of this game, or, or when when I pitched you this idea, you were pretty fired up to do with me. Um, what, what are sort of your, your memories of this game, this series, this point of time in hockey, where were you at personally, sort of just like getting into, uh, and dipping your toes into the water here with, with this particular game and series, what are sort of the, uh, the lasting impressions and, and kind of the, uh, the, where were you went of it? Yeah, personally, like for me, like I was just, um, finishing up my, uh, my master's at Quinnipiac, um, I would, I would, uh, actually wind up getting traded to Buffalo from Winnipeg like a month after this, but this, uh, 
was this series was particularly interesting to me because I grew up a big LA Kings fan, uh, not necessarily because I'm from California, which I'm not, but um, just their style of hockey that that big power forward, six three who can do have a little bit of everything that can score, make plays, block shots, and LA had a lot of them. So I know just for me, um, when I was, you know. Develop my developing my game at Quinnipiac and just trying to work to be a pro. I was just like, this organization is like, they probably had you know five or six players who were like perfect in terms of a player that I want to be. And um, so I always enjoyed watching the Kings, whether it was the run in twelve or uh, you know the one that we're talking about today in, in fourteen. Um, just that that heavy style of play, uh, that dominant, methodical. Uh, hard to play against, you know, wear you down. And if we do go game seven, um, hopefully, you know, the hard nose play would pay dividends in terms of wearing the other team down. And, you know, they just keep going. They're a machine. So um, that's kind of the background, how I looked at it then. Um, and then just now it's, uh, I'm just, just to watch how well-oiled machine the Kings were, um, yeah. how they battled through different adversity, um, especially going against a team like the Hawks that challenged them speed-wise and skill-wise. It, it was really fun to go back and watch that game. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head there. Part of what makes uh, this matchup so sort of legendary or so um, aesthetically pleasing and kind of adds to the drama is those stylistic differences that kind of make the fight, right? Where And you see it uh, captured so perfectly in this game where the Kings, pretty much every time, I think, I, I know they score once off the rush, but otherwise... Like you can tell that every single time they're coming down with the puck, they want to get it below the goal line and go throw the body and try to win back possession and keep it down there and kind of ground and pound and, and sort of um, just not allow Chicago to go the other way with speed off the rush. Whereas the Blackhawks are built entirely differently where they want to get more into that track meet run and gun. And, and there's a few instances throughout the game and I highlighted them. We'll talk about them more later where, uh, and it was because LA kind of had to score. So they opened it up a bit. And you could see instantly right. the game start to slip away from them where Chicago was clearly favored in that, in that environment, in that setting. And then they quickly kind of reeled it back in. And that sort of speaks to how well the machine they were, that they were able to uh, keep them sort of in their grasp for the most part and kind of make them play the game they wanted to play. But it's so evident watching this, just how um, stylistically different the teams are and how I'm sure their game plans were uh, polar opposites in terms of, you know, before the game and during the meetings where the coaches are telling them what they want to accomplish tonight. I, I imagine they were a complete uh, 180s of each other. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it, it's funny because like you, you bring up just how, you know, LA wasn't really looking to do too much off the rush. They'd get in, they'd work their forge checks, which is makes it really tough for the D-men, especially for the more active D-men on the Blackhawks, like, you know, Aletti or Keith, where they're going to wear them, them down with the forward check. And I think on both sides, I think both teams chose quality scoring chances over, you know, quantity. Obviously, um, there were a couple weird angle, weird bounce goals that Chicago scored. But I, I think they both chose quality scoring chances um just in general in that series they just went about it in a different way chicago you know they would do it you know kind of i hate just generalizing saying like a russian style but if they didn't like it <laughs> right. you know patrick kane was very very easy for him to pull up and uh you know do a gretzky turn up the wall and look for a better option or you know saw doing the same thing 
Um, and then you have, you know, LA where they're not necessarily pulling it up. If they don't like it off the rush, they'll put it in on the goal line. They'll be heavy on their D and they'll just kind of grind you along the walls, along the different boards. And, you know, and when they had the opportunity to strike or bring it to the net, they did so, and they were just hard to play against. And, um, you know, I think when I think of what's, you know, hard to play against and heavy hockey, I mean, this, this team, you know, for that, you know, really five six year span i mean that's i think that's the example and kind of gold standard of you know the 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 quote-unquote heavy hockey it was i do think it kind of uh led people astray a little bit in terms of trying to copy it and sort of replicate it where it's easy to lose sight of the fact that while you know anze kopitar and jeff carter certainly have big bodies they also are incredibly gifted offensive players as well who can capitalize on those opportunities when they do get uh, control of the possession. And and so, um, you know, it's great to be able to play that physical brand of hockey, but if you don't have the requisite skill to back it up, then you're, you're ultimately kind of one dimensional and sort of not accomplishing what you're striving to do. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I look like at a guy like Dwight King, who's great. And I, I got to meet him during my time just within the organization in the American league. But I mean, he's a good example of a guy, you know, he fit, you know, he fit in that system. And I mean, I mean, and I never you know played in the NHL, but like, in terms of fitness system, like he fit in that system where, you know, he gets bounced around elsewhere and like, he doesn't really have a place in the NHL. Right. Mm-hmm. So like, there's definitely, you know, there's a handful of guys that just fit perfect there and they fit the ideals and the culture that they're looking for, but not necessarily working with other teams. So, I mean, I definitely agree where, you know, you see different guys like that have success and then, you know, it's not necessarily their other way because it's not conducive to their game. It's not as simple. It's not as, you know, machine-like as, as the Kings were. I mean, going back and watching these games, I've done about 10 or so of these rewatchables now. And for the most part, I think my success rate of picking quality games has been pretty good. And, and I think with this one, um, you know, it's clearly a classic in the sense of, of all the drama and all the storylines heading into it. But whenever you, you're picking a game and going back and rewatching something from five, six, maybe even 10 years ago, uh, especially the NHL product has changed so much aesthetically that you're not sure how it's going to hold up over time and whether it's going to look like an entirely different game than, than what we're used to these days. And I think this one certainly held up for the most part, maybe just like from a quality perspective, it, it wasn't as good as I thought it was going to be just because of it felt like most of the goals were, as you alluded to, kind of like not random bounces because that's what playoff hockey is all about. But there'd be just like it would bounce off someone and just Jonathan Taves would be wide open there for a tap in. And you'd had that a couple of times. And, and it wasn't necessarily the super high end skill plays that you typically expect. But when you get to this stage in the postseason where you're in the West final a game seven, especially a game that's going to overtime, that kind of uh, like attrition starts to to come into play. And, and I think we saw that in this one. So the drama was certainly there and the stakes were there, but there was a lot of just kind of throwing the puck around and, and hoping that it landed in the right spot for you to tap it in or, or kind of just, especially there was that one, one goal, um, where Patrick Sharp's coming in off the rush and it just like, yeah, it just right, hits yeah. a random dead spot in the ice and bounces over Jonathan Quick's pad. And, uh, you know, certainly shooters shoot and Patrick Sharp shoots a lot. And when you do, you're going to get the benefit of the doubt like that. But it's not one that I think, uh, you know, when he's retelling that story to his grandkids, he's probably telling a different story than how it actually went in. Yeah, it's funny. Like the game is definitely watching it uh you know this last week it's definitely different than i remembered it um like 
what, just watching it live, you just kind of get lost and just how big of the swings were like the, you know, with LA constantly fighting back from behind um, and then just to, you know, pull even. And then, you know, that kind of goes back to what I was saying before about just, you know, that physical and mental wear that they have on opposing teams. Um, I also was taken back to um, just, you know, as much as I love that brand of hockey and it was, that was essentially my game, like how, like, you know, <laughs> it, it's, it's funny. Like they, you know, the few game sevens that year. And I was just thinking like, you know, you can't even, you can't play like that in 2020, no. you know, like, and, um, and it, it's crazy how much the game has evolved since then. And I, I mean, I feel like I've experienced that in my career. Like, you know, I've played that way and then the game is certainly, certainly changed. And, um, I think if anything, like you said, like, uh, you know, you see people trying to copycat that and you can't, and it's definitely a losing proposition. But I think what you do see for sure is that no matter how skilled the game is or how fast the game is, you need that element. Obviously LA is maybe in this you know instant was a more extreme example of that, of mm-hmm. having like those heavy components. And obviously, you know, you already touched on a guy like Kopitar and, um, you know, sprinkling Gabrick actually forgot he was on a team that year. Right. Um, and, and uh, Carter, but, you know, I think what we've seen in, you know, past cup winners since then is that, every, you know, you, you, you do need that line that, you know, two, three guys, whether it's like Tampa Bay this year going out to get like a Coleman, Goudreau, and they have pocket, you need some, that physical presence and some capacity to wear down the opponent, both physically and mentally. So I think if anything that I learned is that maybe, you know, how the Kings did it can't be replicated, but the need for that type of presence and that type of relentlessness is something that's needed for a team to, you know, achieve the ultimate goal. Yeah. I think it's part, I mean, it's definitely by design, right? Like LA wanted to play that way. I think they felt like they had to, I mean, that was their, their brand regardless of the opponent, but especially against this Blackhawks team, they, they couldn't afford to, to play into their hands. And so it was interesting seeing that push and pull where a couple times, you finally saw them just going back and forth and trading chances. And you could tell they were kind of like out of their comfort zone and wanted to reel it back in. And so kudos to them for accomplishing that. But um, I'm going to set the scene here a little bit for our listeners just to kind of, uh, you know, jog our memories in terms of what was going on here, because the reason why we picked this game and this series and why I think it is a classic is these two teams were sort of jockeying for Western conference or maybe even NHL supremacy for those early 2010s where they were kind of trading championships. They accounted for five of the six Stanley cups from 2010 to 2015. This was the rematch from the year prior where the Blackhawks won in five games in the West final en route to the Stanley cup. But that was a much more closely contested series where uh, Chicago won in, in double OT in game five to, to finish that series. It was, it was, it was really closely competitive. And then, so you have Chicago now defending their championship. Um, the stylistic differences we mentioned a game seven OT, which is obviously always a crowd pleaser. And I think when I was trying to kind of teleport myself back in time to the the kind of headspace we were in, thinking about this series and sort of the uh, the magnitude of it, it really I was reminded that it felt like this was basically the Stanley Cup 
Uh, you didn't want to discredit yeah. what, what the Rangers were accomplishing out east, but they were this team where they were just riding Henrik Lundqvist. They didn't have a single player with 60 points that season. I believe Matt Zuccarello led them offensively with 59 points for the entire year. And it felt like they were going to be overmatched regardless of the opponents. So you had LA and Chicago just kind of going back and forth trading haymakers. And it felt like... Uh, you know, you would never want to overlook an opponent. I'm sure if you talk to anyone in any of those two rooms, they would have said, we're purely viewing this as the West final and we'll deal with the Rangers when we get there. But I'm sure like it was kind of lingering in their minds that, you know, there's something bigger at play here. If we get by this opponent, it'll probably be the ultimate test for us. So the West final in theory kind of was for all the marbles. And that's what made uh, this series and this game feels like so much more dramatic than you would otherwise believe it to be. Yeah, I think you said that perfectly because it took me to rewatch the game to even i'm like who who do they even play in the finals i think doc said you know that you know new york's waiting for whoever wins this but um if i didn't hear that i, I would have guessed a million different teams before you said new york but yeah like the, the the stage was definitely as you said like you know the power was in the west the western conference was a lot stronger i mean the east can do whatever and then you have the teams that you might you know really believe in an out east but you knew the, the path to the stanley cup was going through the west and it really was a gauntlet so um yeah i it, it really did feel like it was a stanley cup atmosphere the momentum uh the pressure and i i thought that I just felt like with watching the players and just the plays that being made that, you know, they knew that it was for, for everything. And I mean, like I said, even watching it, I had to keep reminding myself that this wasn't a Stanley cup final game. Like this is, this is just to get there. And that just speaks to the dominance of the, the organizations. I mean, you can, you know, those are the, probably the two best organizations of, well, I mean, maybe not the decade, but definitely the first, definitely the first part. And, um, and, and it shows and, and, and it showed just like it also showed just how in transition the game was. Right. Because um, with the different lockouts, you see the style of play changing, but you had two very, you know, conflicting styles and both had shown success in the league where I don't think that would necessarily be the case in 2020. Absolutely. All right. Well, let's get into the categories. I feel like we've kind of lined it up here. Um in rewatching this, what sort of stuck out to you as really aging the best? Um, and you can kind of take that any direction you want, but just in terms of like now that we've had the benefit of six years or so or whatever now of hindsight, um, what was kind of ahead of its time or what wound up being proven to be correct or what really stuck out to you as, as aging the best here? Um, that's a tough question. I, I think when I first saw the question, when we were kind of going back and forth on just taking notes, like, Patrick Kane was his skill level and how he played was so ahead of the game. And like, I feel like the game has finally kind of caught up to his way of thinking and way of playing out there. I mean, he, he really like, he looks no different really today than he did back then, except for the way the game was played was different and, you know, how people played against him obviously now are different, but I mean, watching him play, like I age extremely well and, he's he's I feel like he was kind of a decade ahead of his time in terms of style of play and I think a lot of the style of play you see today probably has a lot to do with the younger players who are kind of transcending the league uh watching a guy like him play 
Yeah. And, and it's funny because in sort of contrast to that, I guess they kind of technically age the worst by sort of definition. But what aged the best for me was watching players who are still around um, but look physically different in 2020 uh, as, you know, just aging takes takes uh, control. Um, you know, whether it's a Duncan Keith or even a Drew Doughty who's not necessarily that old, but because of the miles and the sort of grueling nature of games like this is probably his, his actual body is sort of probably older than uh, his age would indicate. They, like, look physically different. You still watch them in 2020 in NHL games and they're still effective in different ways, but... Like in this game, they're still sort of at the peak of their powers of flying around and jumping up on the rush and finding themselves in scoring positions and throwing big hits and and they're just playing a different brand of hockey than you than you'd see from them today. So it was kind of a a neat trip down memory lane to watch, um, you know, yeah, great players like guys that. Like, yeah, guys like uh, Dowdy, you know, I, what kind of jumped to me, like you know not not wearing a letter a guy like sod not having a letter like guys who are like leaders and now proven and commodities like they're you know daddy's going for a second cup in, in this game um but you know you're completely right in terms of the style of play i mean Dowdy's game's definitely a little bit more controlled now um i mean sure that probably has something to do with just you know the compet the type of competitive games that he's in now but just learning the game and learning just to you know preserve himself longer but um yeah i think the 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 names that you brought up definitely make sense and even a guy like steebrook also stood out because i mean that's kind of when he's in his team canada days and then you think now of just kind of you know him getting in and out the lineup a little bit it's it's crazy what difference really only six years make no it is and i think even in this game you can kind of see that he was never never certainly the most fleet of foot player right like he would use kind of smarts and and physicality and and guile and, and he had a big shot and they were utilizing it from the point on the power play in this game but you could tell i think there was one goal against it was it was certainly an unlucky bounce but he was like a step slow to react and get there and I think at this point, he's 28 or 29 years old, right on that edge. And it was kind of a, a I guess, a warning sign of kind of what was going to come down the road. And and it's interesting, I guess, part of it, it has to do with sort of, you know, the loyalty and, and, and the good times. And you want to reward the player for all the success they've had with the organization. But watching this game, it was kind of tough to believe that a year later, you'd sign um, that player to the type of contract that the, the Blackhawks eventually did. Yeah, it's funny, even... And perhaps I was talking to someone like, you know, a lot of guys got rewarded just, you know, for that, you know, pre-2015 success. And rightfully so. I mean, the success that they had. But, you know, from a GM perspective, it's, you know, I guess it's a really tough choice. Loyalty versus projecting uh, futures. I mean, that's a tough job. But I, I mean, I agree with what you're saying in terms of it's hard to believe that the amount of money was owed for someone who, I guess is in the prime and you know science says he's going to be out of his prime so i don't know maybe that's something where analytics will yeah kind of helps with that type of stuff there because uh yeah it's it's uh it's definitely a difference okay i'll give you another what age the best here the uh watching kopitar and taves duel in this in this game was really fascinating to me i i just i don't know how you feel about it but i love that idea we don't see as much of it in hockey because it is such a team game and you're kind of, you know, a lot of the game is spent on the fly and you're jumping over the boards and it's really tough to sort of game plan like 
mano a mano this guy's gonna go up against this guy for the entirety of the game like you'd see in the nba for example where you know they're guarding each other and and you can really sort of uh test who's better but at this time there was a lot of conversation you know Taze was in the conversation versus crosby um and then kopitar was kind of clawing into it as like who is the the clutch big center that you would want to build a team around if you're trying to win a stanley cup and they were just really getting after it in this series where they were kind of playing exclusively almost against each other. I, I, I dug it up for you. and I'm going to drop some stats on you here. So in the seven games, they played 66 minutes total at five on five against each other. During that time, the shots were 32 to 32. So completely even goals were only two to one wow. for LA and the high danger attempts were 16 to 15 for, for LA. And so they basically played each other to a draw. And I think that's why you saw, Kane and Saad kind of have freedom to create more offensively. And similarly, uh, you know, Carter's line got a, a slightly easier matchup and they could create more and they had more freedom themselves. But you really saw kind of Kopitar and Taves uh, just two Goliaths at this point at the peak of their power is just going head to head and ultimately canceling each other out. And I'm not sure if, if uh, both teams, you know, should have gone that route. Maybe they should have tried to free up one or the other to not have to play against the other and maybe have some easier minutes so they could produce more offensively. But it was cool watching them uh, play against each other. Definitely. I mean, I, I think you want to see your best on best, especially your one versus one. Cause that's, I mean, that shows the true strength of your team. If your top players can cancel out, how is your secondary and, you know, tertiary wave of scoring and depth? Um, I, I actually thought, you know, Tavis probably had the, the slight edge in game seven, just in terms of just what he brought. Um, that's funny watching that game too. Cause I thought, wow, like Taves would make a perfect Los Angeles King. Like, <laughs> uh, he had one, two, two, three shifts where he was just, you know, using his body, uh, working below the dots, um, in the ozone and no one could get the puck off him. You got, you know, Willie Mitchell leaning on him, uh, green leaning on him, and he's just kind of having his way. And, it was, I was just thinking like, wow, I like he would have been an unreal King player during this time and would have fit right in. But I, I mean, you can make an argument and everyone has that he's, that you know, he can play anywhere. Uh, but I think obviously with the Kings, he'd been great, but yeah, I, I, that battle uh, was phenomenal. And I think that's what you want to see. I think that's, you know, that's what your GM want to see. Your fans want to see best on best. It's when I was prepping for the show and doing the research, I, uh, so at the time I was writing for sporting news and I wrote this article. I remember it was, it was controversial at the time. I got a lot of pushback because, uh, people just viewed tapes to be an entirely different tier. Uh, it's just sort of the mainstream opinion, but I was a big believer that if Kopitar, um, you know, either played for a different market or was from a different country, we'd think about him a lot differently. And I actually had this line in this big article. I wrote about it where I wrote, we'd be kidding ourselves if we didn't acknowledge that Anze Kopitar would be viewed differently if he were named Andrew King from Minnesota, Ontario, for uh, Mississauga, Ontario, right. sorry. And, and, and yeah. you know, it, it's it, when we think back, because I was kind of comparing them and stacking them up, and obviously Taze has the advantage of the extra Stanley Cup and the one con Smythe to his name. But otherwise, like right. statistically, they're they're very similar players. And you could even argue that at the peak of his powers, Kopitar had a slight advantage in terms of, um, you know, what he was able to accomplish with the pieces he was given, certainly didn't have the caliber of line mates that uh, Taves did. For me, like Kopitar is my like favorite player in the NHL. Like I think his combination of strength and skill and vision, and you spoke to it in terms of pieces that he dealt with and the numbers 
that he's able to put up from a uh, you know organization that has never you know we'll just say they struggle offensively for him to drive play as much as he does um, is is amazing so i mean i'm sure there is some sort of bias in terms of that you I mean you know you always hear a good you know good canadian boy or yeah. something like that but kopitar i mean you know i I've had him as a top five player in the NHL, just overall what he brings for, I mean, since then, probably, you know, since 2012, I, I, there's not a more consistent player that I think you can rely on. And if you would have seen him with different teams who might play a little more open, um, his numbers would be even better than they are, but he's still putting up those numbers with a team that values, you know, puck possession and defense, uh, you know, before you know production and that's why they had so much success and that's why obviously he eventually became captain because he bought into those and not only was able to be responsible and trusted but he also more than took care of business on the offensive side yeah uh it's funny you bring up sort of how they what they prioritized or what they valued because certainly i think this king's team you know especially in 2012 where they took the league by storm after acquiring jeff carter but they were kind of the uh Oh, I guess the, like the the Red Wings teams there in like two thousand seven eight were like the the OG puck possession teams when you think of the all time greats at five on five. But this Kings team right. was right up there in, in any measure you'd want to look at at five on five in terms of dictating play, controlling shot share, chances, expected oh, goals, yeah, anything. And but funny enough, this Chicago team certainly was up there too. I think they were two of the top three or four or five on five teams that season. And I guess that age the best in terms of both the two of them showing that you could accomplish it in wildly different ways. And also the value of just being dominant uh, at five on five and having the puck on your stick at all times and the success these two organizations had uh, kind of prioritizing that in their game. Yeah. I mean, the, the old expression is more than one way to skin a cat. I mean, I think both teams and probably give the edge to LA for this. Cause they, I mean, they really, I mean, they, they, built very well through the draft and then they added, you know, the handful of pieces, and, you know, and same, same with the Blackhawks. But I think they did a good job of just making the most, they, you know, they had a vision. The Kings vision is to, you know, play that puck possession. And then the Blackhawks had, you know, skill with, you know, they had their bigger guys or stronger guys, but I think it was good um, that both coaches and organizations were on the same page of that, because I think a lot of teams, you know, might draft a certain type of player, but, maybe the coach doesn't do it the way that's conducive. They really stuck to a plan. And I think that's why both organizations had success because you could see the cohesion. It showed up on the ice between, you know, the scouts and the GM and the coaches and the players, what's expected. And I think that's why everyone worked well together. No one, no one looked out of place out there yeah. um, in terms of how they should play or how they were expected to play. And I think just me playing in the American league system for the Kings is no different there. I mean, it was so easy to play because you knew what was expected. You knew exactly where you should be. Um, and you know, if a puck goes to where you should be, it's not the person's fault to pass the puck. It's a person, it's your fault for not being where you should be right. and not having that predictable field. So I think, um, I think both organizations did that to a T and I think, you know, the, the organizations that are successful do that. I mean, teams like Dallas who, and Tampa Bay who made it, you know, to the cup this year, again, built through the draft and it worked its all way up from the American league, the success that they've had there that starts with the vision from the scouts in the front office. And then it takes a head coach and everyone to buy and execute. 
But I mean, you know, I think you see a lot of that, you know, the, you know, Kings had their success and their American league team had success and all those guys filter in. You saw that in this year's cup as well. Um, I, I think it all matters. I think it all, you know, brings things together. I'll give you one final, what age is the best? And then we'll move on from this category. No controversies. Um, you know, sometimes you, you think of these big games and you taint, it's, it's tainted by a horrible call or a view, especially in 2020 where we're having so many conversations about, um, yeah. you know, challenging offsides and goaltender interference and not knowing what's what there. They reviewed one uh, one time with a Jeff Carter high stick and it was quickly ruled a good goal. And I think they got the right call there. Yep. But there were no like... There were some penalties, and certainly, like I think Brendan saw it had one where it was kind of a questionable makeup call, where it was a weak slash that they probably could have let go. But for the most part, there were like this game was uh, the outcome was determined by the better team ultimately winning and persevering, and there wasn't sort of that caveat of, oh well, if this one call had gone differently, um, would it would the result have been different? Because we didn't really have any of that. And so I appreciated that, that this game wasn't sort of marred by uh, some sort of questionable call that was just, just lingering in the air. Yeah, that's a good one. No, they, they, they played hockey. They left it out on the ice and yeah, I like that. It was, it was strength on strength and yeah, no controversy at all. I'd agree with that. That's awesome. 2020 has really forced us all to reshape the way we work and try to become more efficient in the process, whether it is having Zoom meetings on a daily basis or working remotely from home, or if you're running the PDO cast, watching and rewatching old games as opposed to new ones because there's nothing currently to talk about, we've all had to make adjustments to become more efficient. Fortunately, for businesses out there that are looking to make the most of their hires moving forward, Indeed is here to help. Indeed's the number one job site in the world with more total visits than any other job site. They help you find quality candidates quickly so you can focus on hiring the person you need to keep your business going. And unlike other job sites, Indeed gives you full control and payment flexibility over your hiring. You only pay for what you need, you can pause your account at any time, and there are no long-term contracts. I think the NHL could use something like Indeed. Think about the Edmonton Oilers, for example, who, for some reason, decided to come back this following year with Nico Koskinen and Mike Smith and Net. If they had had something like Indeed to use, hopefully, they would have been able to find a better candidate that would have been more suited to their needs, and they would have addressed the big opening they have in Net. So... That's just something to consider. But Indeed's new way of matching you with candidate instantly delivers a short list of quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed match your job criteria that you can contact the moment you sponsor a job, which makes Indeed the only job site that can move as fast as you do. And right now, Indeed is offering our listeners a free $75 credit to boost your job post, which means more quality candidates will see it fast. So try Indeed out with a free $75 credit at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. This is the best offer available anywhere. Go right now to Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Let them know we sent you. This offer is valid through December 31st. Terms and conditions apply. Sponsoring today's episode of the Hockey PDO Cast is BetOnline. You might not be going to a game this year as we wait for the world to sort itself out and for this pandemic to end and for it to be safe to go back to live sporting events. But in the meantime, you can still be in on the action at BetOnline. BetOnline is going the extra mile to make sure you can get in on every possible chance to win this season. From game spreads and totals to team, player, and coaching props, BetOnline gives you more options to wager than anywhere else. Obviously, there's no hockey or basketball on right now anymore with their seasons over, but football's still on. And down the road, when we know when the NHL season is going to be getting back, you're going to be able to go on there and 
start wagering on futures like championship who do you think is going to win next season stanley cup wagering on wins uh you know player props there's gonna be a lot of good stuff there so uh i recommend going there now and familiarizing yourself with it and trying it out and taking for a spin and then getting ready in advance of the next season so just head to bet online today and take advantage of all the great sign-up bonuses they've got there. Don't forget to use the promo code BLUEWIRE at betonline.ag to let them know that we sent you. That's BLUEWIRE, all one word. BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. Um, all right, what age the worst? Hmm, that's a tough question. Want me to, want me to kick <sighs> us off here? Yeah, lead, lead with that. I had a couple things, but I want to hear what you have. So... At this time, Chicago's running this power play one set with Kane and Taves, obviously. And then they've got Andrew Shaw as kind of the net front present that's kind of mixing it up and trying to get it in, uh, in Jonathan Quick space. And then they're running two defensemen at the point, and they're like really catering a lot of their looks towards teeing up either Seabrook or Keith one-timers. And uh, at one point, they have an extended five-on-three for about 40 to 50 seconds or so, and they don't even get a shot off during that time. And for all the skill this team had and all of the sort of uh, offensive pieces uh, that they had, it was strange to me. And certainly, it aged the worst because in in 2020, uh, whenever I'm watching a game and I see a team run two defensemen on their power play one, I always kind of raise my eyebrow because it's just so outdated at this point. Pretty much every team is exclusively running four forwards. And this team certainly wasn't devoid of four uh, deserving forwards to run out there. And and sure enough, you see later on Patrick Sharp score set up by Brennan Saad on their kind of power play two unit. And it was just, that was a bit of an eyebrow raise to me where um, I I feel like they didn't maximize their opportunities in that regard because I guess maybe in, in 2014, I, I'd have to go back and look at it, but that was just maybe the, the way, you know, they were operating. They were prioritizing those looks. And, and over the past six years, we've learned that's probably not the most efficient way to run your power play. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I remember seeing that. I didn't, I don't think I thought of it as, you know, black and white as there's two defensemen out there, but yeah, that was definitely weird to, definitely weird to see. Um, I, you know, I, not an indictment on some of the, uh, and we kind of already we kind of already talked about it, but just some of the, uh, I guess the players that you that were like a guy like Seabrook, and you know he in fact he had, you know, in during these games compared to to now, and like I like how you kind of talked about like you could kind of see you can kind of see where like the holes were or where they were going to be. Um, yeah, that's something that I guess I, I just kind of kept circling back to. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure if it's because of just the dialogue that came out of there this year. And um, so obviously you're more sensitive to it. But I think he was definitely someone that I kept my eye on. And um, even even like uh, like like Saad, um watching him play with Kane it just seemed like arguably his best hockey and 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 that's not an indictment on him um I think that's probably more of a praise of Patrick Kane and how he's able to elevate his level like he had a lot of you know a lot of ice out there with you know Saad and uh Shaw and just the way he elevated elevated those guys I mean it really looked like a guy like Saad had a, a, a completely different gear yeah 
Well, what age the worst for me every single time Chicago has traded Brennan Saad. And we'll we'll run through those three uh, transactions in a second here. But at this time, he's 21 years old. And for buy money, he was the best player on the ice in this game. Um, you know, certainly. Yeah, and, that, and that's why I was like, I can't believe, I can't believe I understand. I understand there's, you know, cap and all that stuff. Um, it's funny because just watching like the World Series, they kept saying like who trades Mookie Betts and obviously Saad's not at that level. But, right. like, you know, you find a way to keep a guy like that who just, he just did, he was, it was so good. So just to see him you know come and go and come and go you know that definitely is just and that's kind of what I was alluding to before like I would like to find a way to, to keep that yeah it, it obviously it helps with Kane's just uh demanding so much extra attention and it's creating extra space for him on the ice so it, that helps but it felt like he was creating something anytime he was out there in this game he had the goal assist five shot attempts shots for 11 yeah, and whether it was energy or an actual play like he just was a very all-around really good player I, I mean it felt like honestly the puck bounced on him a couple times there i i feel like uh under better ice conditions more to be had yeah. he might have even scored yeah. a couple more times but so yeah he's playing on his entry-level deal at this point he's 21 years old as i mentioned um, yeah a year later they wind up moving him but so these are the three times chicago's traded brennan Saad. so in the summer of 2015 they traded him for artem anisimov because they didn't want to pay him on his next deal. And then two years later in the summer of 2017, they trade Artemi Panarin for him because Panarin has a year left on his deal and they, they're kind of regretting or uh, avoiding having to deal with him as a free agent the following year. And then this summer, they trade him for Nikita Zadorov, and I bet you he's going to look mighty good on uh, on Colorado playing in their top six. And I guess, listen, like if you watch this game, if you told me the Brendan Saad, just purely from watching this game, if you didn't know otherwise, told me he was going to be one of the five best players in the league and be a complete superstar, I'd believe you without knowing anything else based on how good he looked. So I guess yeah. it's a bit disappointing that his career hasn't necessarily turned out to be the sort of um, game-changing impact player that he was in this one. But um, still still a heck of a career. Obviously, scored 30 goals in Columbus, won a couple cups, and still has some good years ahead of him. But yeah, it was it was kind of jarring to see just how impactful he was in this one. Yeah, for sure. It just kind of, and, and I guess it has nothing to do with the game, but just when you you go big picture and you're looking at it from 2020, it's like, you know, he's, he's, he's been given away twice now. Yep. <laughs> it's funny. Um, there's a couple different ways I can go with this one. I guess a quick one, the amount of dumping and chasing. I don't mean to insult you after uh, all we've talked about with how you uh, you like the Kings style and the way they played. And, and certainly, oh, no, no. I admit they, they, they you know, it was by design and they had to play this way against Chicago. And, and that's, this is what made them successful. But just watching it, it was like every time they'd enter the zone, you'd be like, oh, okay, here comes a dump in. And, and to, the, to the point where... They knew it was an older game to watch. But you know they what? knew this wasn't new. You know what, though, Jordan? Like, it, it was interesting to watch because there's one point I think with like about a minute left in the game uh, in regulation, Dustin Brown's coming in off the right wing and you can almost see Chicago's defense like relax a little bit because they feel like they can sag back because he's just going to dump it in. And instead he just keeps the puck and goes in and almost wins the game there because they sort of gave him that extra room. And I I honestly just watching it, it it certainly looks like they were just fully expecting him to dump in based on their MO and he sort of, uh, you know, pulled a little switcheroo and, and, and took advantage of it. But that's, that's the sort of extreme and the extent to how often they were dumping in that Chicago was just fully expecting him to do it again. Sometimes it just didn't make sense. Yeah. Like, why would you dump it there? 
like they just it's like and you know and going back to it like you know it it makes sense for what they did and everyone bought in like you know maybe you know your chances of scoring off the rush if you're you know that type of player if you're Dwight King or something like that probably very low I mean you know can can you make that slot line pass you know are you going to pick a corner the chances are against you but you know so you give up that opportunity you put it in a corner um Duncan Keys on the ice so now you're getting a body check on him you're wearing him down the game goes to OT all those little things those little incremental things make a difference and you know that's something and I, you know, I love like you know analytics and data but that, that's something that you can't really take an account for that feeling of just knowing that you know you're gonna you're gonna get hit or you know you cheating the sag and having a, a loose gap because you just want to get to the puck as quick as can so you can get the puck off your stick as quickly as you can. It, it all adds up, and, and you can see it on the ice. I mean, obviously, none of us were in the game, but I'm sure those guys, uh, you know, those third-line guys, or pretty much everyone was willing to play the body, but they could, they probably could see it in their eyes that it was frustrating that it's a lot. So, I mean, it was definitely, I would, I don't know how to describe unsettling to see mm. so many dumps because you would just, it's, it's just uncomfortable, I would say, to see it in 2020, but... But then when you just, you know, put yourself in the context of what the Kings were doing and then just you know, the war attrition that's going on there, then it's then it makes more sense. Yeah, I think there was one time where uh, Dwight King like literally entered the offensive zone unimpeded and it was just inside the blue line and just dumped it in anyways. I was just like, what? This, this would be yeah he like soft chipped it to himself obviously he was gonna get it yes but yeah, yeah. look like he's just hoping to get contact i know he's <laughs> like okay i'm just gonna go throw my body in that corner there and kind of kill 40 seconds off the clock here and see if we can wa- grind, yeah, grind it down easy. a little bit and yeah that, and that guy and he eight minutes i mean you know he played he's playing top nine not i don't he's not top nine skill wise but he, he knows how to hold on to a puck and and eat possession time i mean i think he's probably a top six player in that respect on the Kings for you know his career there what was uh let's get into the most rewatchable moment here was there you know beyond just obviously saying like okay you should if, if you can only watch a, a part of this game watch the five minutes of OT or whatever uh because it actually was entertaining but was there any other points in the game sort of inflection points where um you were particularly kind of riveted or, or uh, finding yourself really being sucked into it if someone was like oh listen I'm not going to sit down because I'm not a huge nerd and watch two and a half hours worth of this game are there certain regions you're kind of telling them to uh, to go into? Um, I per- I actually kind of like the first ten minutes, and the reason why is because it would probably set you up to continue watching. It's <laughs> right. you know I thought the Kings were playing. I thought the Blackhawks were a little loose, and the Kings were outplaying them the first ten minutes. But they were they were down two goals, and the way that they, you know, the way that the goals went in were a bit deflating right i think i think one of them was like that you know weird bounce off like patrick kane's pants to someone back door um you know you had mentioned the uh the sharp goal but you know i i like when i rewatched this i i kind of forgot that the kings came back and won this in ot because it's just like you know you're doing what you're supposed to do you're on the road Chicago fans are losing their minds. You're down to nothing. You know, you have to look at the details where you think is quick shaky is even there. Obviously there are some bad bounces, but you don't know what that does to a team. So it's like, I looked at it as like that first 10 minutes. It's like, 
you know, Kings are going to come back and win this in overtime where the, it could have been done playing against, you know, the Chicago Blackhawks who have already won two cups, the game seven at home and they're already up two nothing. I thought I found that intriguing. It's probably because I knew the outcome, right. but rewatching it, I was just like, how are the, how will the, how will they get how will the kings get out of this because they're not goal scorers so two nothing's not the deficit that you really want um yeah that's that's kind of was that was i i really enjoyed that yeah yeah it was interesting seeing how they got there i think there were three goals in a, in a like a basically a 60 second span of game time there late in the first um i would yeah. i would say the start of the third is a bit of a slog. Like there's just nothing happening for seven or eight minutes. And considering Chicago was up, I think they were happy with that way. Um, but then, like I mentioned earlier, I think it's around the 12 minute mark or with 12 minutes left in the third period. You can see that LA sort of goes, all right, we can't just keep milking clock here because we're going to lose. We need to score. And so they open it up a bit and there's like four or five odd man rushes traded back and forth and a couple big saves and a couple close calls. And that's when the game really starts to open up. And then after LA ties it, um, I was really impressed to see how much Chicago sort of went for it. Um, you know, with about six minutes left or so, it was a tie game at four, four, and they were creating some, some serious pressure there and nearly won it at the buzzer. I kind of forgot like quick makes this remarkable sort of toe save, uh, right at the goal line. So they certainly, these weren't two teams that were sort of just taking it for granted and, and kind of waiting to, to get to the locker room and wait for overtime. Like this, this one easily could have ended in regulation. And I love seeing that sort of, uh, that motivation to not just, not just take those last couple seconds or a couple minutes for granted. Yeah, you can, you can, I mean, who knows, but you can kind of make an argument that that push from Chicago is just like, they knew that like, this is probably their best opportunity to win. Obviously, it's every team's best opportunity to win it, but the Kings in, in Game 7, they're not going to give you an inch. You know, you got Mr. Game 7 across the way. Hmm. Um, and I that push, like, it was definitely noticeable. They're going on all, all cylinders. You had guys like, you know, Versteeg wasn't getting that much ice time before. Like, he's, you know, getting more ice time, getting involved offensively. And they, I mean, they opened it up even more and, um, it kind of looked like LA was a bit not taken off guard, but was unable to match the speed. It's like, you know, you know, you're going to be in a long playoff. So maybe you're not going, you know, complete hundred percent top speed. And they're like, all right, like, let's take the top off of this. Like, let's, let's end this now. Cause you know, you're going to give, if you don't, LA is going to get a fresh 20 minutes and they're going to do what they do. And that's where kind of, you know, I brought up a couple of times, that's where the wear and tear and just the mental and physical grind that playing that Kings team will do to you will start to take effect. Yep. Yep. Definitely. Um, all right. Biggest heat check performance. And you're not allowed to say Patrick A. was good here because he's obviously a superstar. Can't say Anze Kopitar. Is there someone kind of like in a depth role or someone uh, just rewatching this, not knowing, knowing the result, but not knowing how they got there that really stuck out to you as like, kind of just popping off the page of that was a better performance than I remembered. Huh. That's a, I mean, I, I, so, so Jared stole, obviously he missed some time, right? He Mm -hmm. he started the game. He was out for a bit. And, um, I kind of forgot the minutes that he was playing for this team. Right. And, um, I think, so, 
it kind of reminded me just how like versatile of a player he was. And obviously like, you know, he's, you know, he's the big body in front of the goal for the, for the game winner. But I mean, yeah, I just, I, I just forgot because there's a lot of players that are very similar. I just kind of forgot all about Jared Stoll and his impact on the team and then just the grittiness to, to come back. So I thought, you know, in in it's game seven and it obviously meant something to him. Um, but you know, battling what he was battling to come back and have the impact that he did. I thought that was, that was great. And then, like I said, I did forget Gabrick was on the team too. Uh, but that was just more of a goal thing than an overall play. You're such a hockey guy highlighting Jared Stoll's grittiness as uh, what stuck out to you. That's funny. Um, I I mean, obviously the obvious answer is Brendan Saad, right? Like he, uh, just well, yeah, just how said, good he yeah. was. But yeah, I mean, he was playing on basically, for all intents and purposes, the top line. Um, Patrick Sharp was interesting to me here because the way I remembered it was he was playing with Taves and Hosa, and he had a great year. And you look at his numbers, he scored like nearly 40 goals. But at this point in the season, I don't know if it was because he was struggling offensively or because, uh, you know, they had that taves Kopitar matchup. So I think Quenville might have wanted to load up a bit more physicality so they could deal with Kopitar and Brown. Um, but they had Brian Bickle playing on the top line there with Taves and Hosa, and, and Patrick Sharp was relegated to third line duty with Marcus Kruger and Ben Smith. But he was kind of, I don't know if he, I don't know if that was this, this sort of wake up call that he needed or, or, or what have you, but he was, he was flying out there and uh, creating a lot and he scored the two goals. And so, just you know, by the by the definition of this kind of check performance for a for a less heralded guy, um, just you know, he was a third liner for them in this game essentially, and he came up with two big goals. So I think Patrick Sharp's performance. For sure, here, yeah. he was still getting work on the uh, on the power for me, play. So yeah. I, I was just like, he's still getting work on the power play, right? Utilizing his shot. That first goal that kind of went over Quick's pad, right? That was him, right? That wasn't. Yeah, uh, yeah. he scored so two, I, and then on the power yeah. play. Yeah, right. So yeah, and he had the slap shot on the power play. So I mean, I. I think that was more of like a surprise because I think it said like that might have been his like fourth and fifth goal of the playoffs, mm-hmm. which you would think you would have a lot more. So, it, it, yeah, I mean, I guess from his production standpoint, like from so far in the playoffs, he produced well, but it, it was it was a good bounce. And and then all credit for him on that power play shot because that's a clutch shot that the team needed um, at the time. Uh but yeah, I think I guess looking back, you I, I was definitely I knew Bickle played with that top line. I just I forgot that it was you know at this juncture of, career, of his career because this is kind of you know I guess you could also say like you know in terms of like breakout performances like this is part of that streak that made Bickle very highly you know attracted attractive to a lot of other teams in the league where he really just kind of fit in in Chicago playing with those type of players. Well, I mean, he was playing on this top line. I think it was a 2013 cup when he, he scored like nine goals or something. And then he got paid. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then he got paid uh 16 million. And, and unfortunately, you know, when you like, when you, what age the worst in terms of um, how, you know, the, and we talked about this with Seabrook, sort of those loyalty contracts and how that's where teams kind of get themselves into trouble a little bit. Like Chicago at that, in that last year of that deal, basically had to attach to able to uh, to give them to Carolina just to allow that to happen because they were so uh, yeah. up against the cap and and, and story so, for another day. Yeah, and so when you're <laughs> when you're giving up guys like Teravina and you're giving up and you know they have to give up Philip da- Philip Dano at some point as well who has thrived in Montreal and that's why if you're a team like Chicago you're looking back five years later and you're like oh well this is maybe why we've kind of failed to uh, 
to sort of regenerate a, a second or a third run here while we still have Kane, uh, Taves, and, and Keith because right. we gave up a lot of that young talent because we just couldn't afford them. Definitely, three cups to show for it. So hard to, it's yes. hard to argue. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, it's hard to. It's I don't know how you, you know, being a GM in National Hockey League is a tough job. Um, how do you sustain that? Yeah, well, make, yeah, that, that's why. I mean, like Nick Nick, Nick Letty in this game. Um, wildly overqualified for the role he was playing. I think he played just 12 minutes yeah. or so in this one. And you could tell like he was supremely gifted with his skating and his, and his offensive skills, but uh, he, they just didn't trust him. And, and, you know, maybe deservedly so because he was unfortunately out there for uh, the game, game winning goal against to kind of bounced off him, unfortunately, and he couldn't really get good position out front of net, but um, yeah, he was another kind of cap casualty for them. So it is what it is. Yeah, you're right. When you achieve the ultimate goal of winning the Stanley Cup, it's yeah. tough to argue. But That's um, the price you pay. Yeah. yeah. Um, all right, most unanswerable questions. Here's one for you. Do the Columbus Blue Jackets get rings for, for LA's 2012 and 2014 Cups after they just gift-wrapped Jeff Carter and Marion Gabrick for them? <laughs> um, I, yes and no. I mean, I'm sure – I mean – that's a really good question, and that that fits the unanswerable part. I mean, obviously, a chef, uh, you know, it it had to change for Jeff in Columbus. It wasn't work out during his short time there. Mm-hmm. So, as much it was a gift wrap, I mean, Columbus has been, you know, I feel like they've always made decisive moves, and that was one of them. And obviously, the return wasn't there, but they did what they had to do for their club. But I remember seeing that trade, like saying, like, wow, like they couldn't have acquired a better player that's going to fit into their system like overall. And I, I remember looking, I think maybe the athletic came out with a story um, this year, just looking back at the trade or, or, or something like that. And, you know, whether it was going to work out or not, but I mean, he's, he, it, it's been great. So, I mean, I, I guess they should get cup rings for that. Yeah. I mean, it's it, it, being decisive is one thing. They gave up for a chicken Couturier for 39 games of them. And then, Quickly, quickly pulled pulled the uh, pulled the shoot and uh, got Jack Johnson in return for him. Yeah, and uh, yeah, that's nuts. And you know, you, you mentioned the Gabrick one. You forgot uh, that he was on this team. Like he um, was very clutch for them. I think he he led them in goal scoring during his run. Believe I believe he had like fourteen goals or something. He, um, you know, wasn't that obvious in this game. But I remember at the time he really provided them with like this kind of dynamic goal scoring element speed, right yeah. just a little burst exactly he's the only guy who's going to be pulling pulling past people i mean that's how he scored his goal just he, you know the one thing he can do is skate so i, I remember being I, so I, didn't, I didn't remember it being during this this run because uh, uh, i don't know i feel like that's not often associated with with gabrick and hmm. kind of his his style of play and just his pedigree but obviously like you know he was more than there for this and he made a contribution. Uh, okay. Here's one final answerable question, or maybe it is answerable because I'm going to pose it to you and, and hopefully you can answer it. But um, this idea of kind of like referee, even up calls. And I alluded to it earlier with uh, the sod slash he got in the second period. It was, it was after uh, Chicago got a five on three and they didn't capitalize. And then you kind of knew just with the flow of the game that the next sort of remotely questionable thing they did the referees were going to try to get la back in their in their good books or kind of even it out and like as a player how do you sort of um 
like deal with that kind of like does it like affect your mindset at all are you kind of aware of it because it, it certainly feels like just like as an observer watching these games that you can tell like when that tide is shifting and when a team's been getting a lot of calls and they haven't been capitalizing on them like the other yeah, team is due for, for some power plays yeah as a player you're definitely aware of it i mean a coach will say it too i mean if you start off and you, you had three power plays in the first and you go in an intermission the coach is saying like you know the next one's probably coming to us like you know we deserve it because even if even if there were three definite penalties like you know you have you were on the man advantage for six minutes so they're probably going to call you tighter because i don't know if it's like a, a natural thing so i mean i think you're definitely aware of it i don't think it i don't think it affects a player like even if a, a player complains or says anything like that was a makeup call like you know it's kind of the heat of the moment type thing but i I, it it, like you said i think it's well i think you said this it's it's to be expected Mm. that they're going to try to keep the game as even as possible and especially in a game like this where both teams are competing nothing egregious in terms of penalties like no no nothing dangerous so i think that also gives some leeway in terms of the calls that can be made um what were your thoughts generally on the on the, we're going to do Doc and Eddie's commentary corner here? Well, the the link that I send you that we watch this on that's available on YouTube, and I'll, and I'll share it with the listeners so they can watch for themselves. But it's the CBC call with uh, with Bob Cole on it. Um, just what, what how do you feel about the quality of the broadcast in terms of because um, sometimes they can really feel like outdated, uh, just because you know the 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 final product of how you present stuff on TV has changed so much over the past how many years? Um, how do you feel about this one in terms of just like them narrating what was happening, capturing the drama of the moment. Like, do you think they did a, a good job? I I think they did a phenomenal job. Um, and I remember because just from the notes that you sent me, just to talk about this, I'm not sure if it was, um, if it's just because it's, you know, COVID and we just had Stanley Cup with no fans or anything. And obviously that adds to it, but, I just, I mean, I've seen this before and it's 14, you know, not 14 years ago, but uh, six years ago, I know the outcome, but I would say that this is probably as engaged as I was all summer watching um, just from the energy that was in the building and then the way they were telling it. I mean, I thought they did a great job of just, you know, staging, staging the whole thing. I mean, and that, and the game really did stage itself. I mean, you know, LA not having a lead, you know, for, for most of the game and uh, the back and forth, the two styles of play. I thought they, they hit on that really well, highlighting those big players that you want to see. Um, you know, it's something, I, well, now that I'm talking about it out loud, it's definitely something that I think uh, just dealing with this last playoffs this last year, um, just not having the fans in the building. Cause I just, I mean, I remember watching it and this one and having a little bit of goosebumps in the moment, knowing what's going to happen and knowing this, like I said, six years ago, but you could definitely feel the energy. And I thought they did a really good job of just presenting that. Yeah. The crowd's good. You got Charles Barkley in, in attendance wearing a Jersey. Yeah. He got a lot of screen. Time. A lot of screen. Like, time, yeah. Yeah. That was weird. <laughs> um, but you know what? Like the only thing that I think I thought from a, a, a broadcast standpoint, they did a good job of like, you're right, just letting the game come to them. It was certainly set up perfectly where like the drama was already built in and the story was there. They did good analysis between plays. I I, I like that. I certainly thought they brought something there. But the one thing that stuck out to me was it was weird. This is where it felt a bit dated. 
there was like no shot counter. There were no like graphics of like showing, you know, chances or shot locations or anything. That's stuff that I've certainly gotten used to and maybe started to take for granted a little bit in 2020 that kind of adds to, um, you know, the statistical sort of storytelling of it and kind of getting a feel for like who's dominating or who's playing well. There's like very bare bones. And I guess that was sort of the norm for 2014 where they were just basically showing the action and there was nothing else popping up on the screen. It was just purely what was happening in the game. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point. But I, I don't think there's anything wrong with it because like, you know, just going back to this year with it, you know, with no fans in the stands, like those graphics and stuff mattered so much, right? Because you need something to fill the time. Like I just thought the production in general where you have, you know, the fans losing their minds and panning, you know, whether it's Charles Barkley or another star just going there. Like I thought that really just from a viewing perspective, if you're not there, like, I'd rather kind of get the view of everything and get that atmosphere from how they did it versus just looking at, you know, the different stats that that they can put that they often put on now that, you know, you know, just because just because like, you know, like you said, like a shot counter, like that's, you know, that, I think you and I both know that doesn't really talk about the game. Or well, I, I think you, I think you can who's playing. you can certainly add it to the screen without it like interfering with the product, right? But yeah, like uh, in this particular game, I, I didn't miss it, but it just kind of stuck out to me as uh, being different from what I'm used to, I guess. Recently, um, who won the game? Let's end. Let's end it on here. Um, like just now that you watched it, you rewatched it, you, it's fresh in your mind. Uh, whether it's like a lasting legacy or whether it is. Uh, the most impactful performance, like what, what stuck out to you there as like the ultimate sort of beneficiary of the, of the final result of this one. In terms of like a player or like a big picture perspective? It could be anything to be honest, like just like in terms of this game, what, what, uh, like, like who, like coming out of it, who, uh, who or what sort of won, won the game, who, who benefited the most from it? Uh, I, I think Jeff Carter. Hmm. Um, I liked, I liked his game. Obviously he was able to contribute, but I thought he popped in a lot of different places and, you know, obviously it fits well in the system, but considering the, the, the backdrop that we had in terms of just Columbus and, you know, how they traded for him and just obviously was willing to just say like, we made a huge mistake. And then for him to kind of have the success that he had there and moving forward, I thought, I thought that was probably very just, you know, like prove people wrong for yeah. him because I mean he's been a world class player so for that to happen to a guy who's representing his country especially when it's Canada is kind of wild to think that something like that this had had to happen but he did it um, and was a key contributor. Well, I, I included him. I thought like the winner was the that seventies line um, because. Yeah. I mean, first off, they were kind of this like viral sensation at this point, right? Like they, they sort of took the league by storm. Everyone was talking about it. Everyone was kind yep. of creating memes about them. And, you know, Carter yeah. was sort of the uh, the figurehead there, right? You you have kind of this like really, you know, Tyler Toffoli has always looked kind of babyish and younger than he is, but he's like especially yeah. clean cut in this one where he doesn't have like a single facial hair. Uh, and yeah, he looks like hair. a young guy. He looks like sure. he's like a teenager. I mean, he always looks young. No, he looks like someone yeah. who like won some sort of a, a draw to get to play with Jeff Carter, and Jeff Carter is kind of just like <laughs> chauffeuring him around, and and you know Tanner Pearson's out there, and, and they dominated throughout this postseason, but especially in this game, they 
they created the two goals. Um, you know, Jeff Carter really got them back into it. You were mentioning earlier. Yeah, Pearson was really good. But you mentioned earlier, like when they when Ellie went down two nothing, you're thinking, how are they going to create enough offense to get back into this? And Ellie and, yeah, and, and Jeff Carter just kind of just like willed one into the net there with like this this mm-hmm. rush after a block shot, and uh, so they were awesome. And it's interesting you mentioned Carter because I don't think he was like at his physical peak here by any means i think early on in philadelphia when he scored 46 goals in 0809 like that's when as a goal scorer he was at right. his best but just in terms of like putting it all together and, and being the complete package i thought he was in real command of the of the game as you alluded to in this one and you know kudos to him i remember when he signed that 11 year deal or whatever he signed with with uh when he went to columbus like or i guess he signed it with philly before they traded him but um i, I remember thinking like there's absolutely no way that Jeff Carter's playing by the end of this deal. And sure enough, he's only got two years left on it and is still uh, potting 20 goals a season and still is a useful uh, contributor in that NHL level. So it's, uh, you know, he's certainly proven me wrong because if you told me that 10 years ago, I would not have believed you. Right. Um, all right. Well, uh, I think that's going to do it. Uh, that's going to be it for this one. Um, I think we we cover the games. Certainly, um, You'd recommend watching it to uh, to all the listeners. You enjoyed the uh, the experience of going back and reliving these glory days. Definitely, I think if you if, if you want to see just the competitiveness of hockey, um, I think this is this is it. And if you just enjoy, I, I think if you enjoy just watching the game and being able to appreciate just how it's transitioned, I think this is a really good game to watch because you have you know two contrasting styles um but you can still see different players and uh philosophies that you still see uh in today's game so from that perspective i think it's a lot of fun um but you can see how uh dominant you know the kings were though they were a bit extreme and how they played their puck possession style but just you know seeing just what a complete cohesive unit looks like and i think that's that's what the kings were during their runs uh for the cups yeah yeah i highly recommend it as well it it lived up to the hype it lived up to the lasting uh memories i had of it and uh i would recommend watching it so all right this is going to be it for uh for the latest rewatchables jordan this was a blast man i'm glad we finally after months and months and months of of texting back and forth trying to make this happen we finally did it so uh uh, hopefully it wasn't it wasn't too painful and hopefully we'll be able to get you back on sometime down the road yeah that's great thanks for having me after we finished recording uh i was thinking back to the conversation that Jordan Samuels Thomas and I had and and I realized that we probably didn't give Justin Williams enough credit and love for his performance in this game and and I couldn't end this show without doing so because it was a game 7 and he is Mr. Game 7 and his performance in this one was exactly as great as you'd expect and I wanted to give him a little bit of love for it before we got out of here so he had the goal he helped set up the game winner by Alec Martinez with a very Justin Williams-esque. It wasn't flashy move, but he retrieved the puck after a dump in, won a puck battle against the boards, got it out to the point, and the rest was history. So it was a it was a very classic Justin Williams performance. Started off slow. He started off this game down the depth chart, worked his way up, wound up playing some really important minutes down the stretch, and put his imprint on the game. And uh lived up to the nickname Mr. Game 7. He ended his career with an 8-1 and record in Game 7s, uh, an NHL record, 7 goals in those games, 15 points. Uh, he got the Conn Smythe at the end of this postseason. 
three Stanley Cup rings, uh, a true legend, uh, one of the early uh, analytics goats. And um, yeah, I just wanted to give him a little bit of love. So before we get out of here, uh, hopefully you enjoyed today's episode of the Rewatchables. If there is any future games you'd like for us to cover, uh, we're still going to have some time here before we have actual new live games to discuss. So plenty of opportunity to get creative and have fun and uh, relive some old classics. So certainly feel free to let me know uh, if there's any games you'd like for us to do in the future. Uh, We've already done a bunch of them. So if you miss them for whatever reason in the spring and summer, go back into the archives and check that out. And uh, yeah, like I like I always end every show, uh, just a reminder that it really helps us a lot if you take the time to go and leave us a rating and review. Um, honestly, just the five-star uh, click helps, and that's really the most simple thing you could possibly do. But if you've got some time and you've got some energy and some willingness, uh, certainly leave us an actual written review. You can discuss you know, whatever whatever comes to mind, what you like about the show, why you'd recommend people listen to it. Really enjoy reading all of those and seeing uh, what you have to say. So thank you for that, for those of you that have already done so. Hopefully those of you that haven't and have been holding out will do so uh, moving forward. And we will be back with a really fun show. Um, I'm, not, I'm not even going to tease it. I'm just going to I'm just gonna let you know that it's, it's, a, it's a really good one. We've already got it recorded. We're going to be running it early next week. So really looking forward to that. The Hockey Pediocast with Dmitry Filipovich. Follow on Twitter at Dim Filipovich and on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash hockey pediocast.